Ang Yong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake in Arrested Development Podcast. I am your host, Darren, and with me today I have two guests. I have uh, Noah McMullen. Hello, Noah. Hi, how's it going? And I have Stephanie Stone Rob. Hello, Stephanie. An Yong. <laughs> and, um, I didn't know whether to respond with An Yong or not. Uh, people have been kind of choosing their own thing, either they've been saying that or not, so, you know, it's entirely. I'm all entirely about a theme. Um, I want to be genuine. On today's episode, we're covering um, the the fourth episode of season one, which is called Key Decisions. Uh, it was broadcast on the 23rd of November, 2003, one week after the previous episode. Uh, that is a, a theme that will become less prevalent as the season goes on, uh, where episodes become more sporadically uh, broadcast. Um, it was written by Brad Copeland. This is the first episode of the season that was not co-written in any way by Mitch Hurwitz and it was directed by Anthony Russo who had directed the second episode and co-directed the pilot with his brother um, uh, and I just want to talk a little bit about Brad Copeland the writer because he um, he writes another couple of episodes for season one and then he writes three episodes for season two um, and then uh, I think he left this I don't know where he left this to... Well, I think he left this to write movies. And the two notable films that he's written are Wild Hogs and the Yogi Bear 3D. Modern cinematic classics, no doubt. Oh my god. No, I had no, no idea about that at all. So the question is, what went wrong, Brad Copeland? I'm, I'm, I'm crestfallen. This episode's a great episode, though. So, you know, he started off right. Mm -hmm. Noah, when the show was on the air, did you watch the show as it aired on Fox, or did you get into it after? I am pretty certain that I couldn't have watched the show when it was on the air. Um, I think... If my remember, if my memory served me correctly, this was around like like '08, and we got like a burned DVD of it somewhere at my house. I was like 12, and so I watched the show like all the way through on a sick day. Uh, something uh, something loud is happening upstairs, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I I watched um, season one, homesick. Loved it, and just, it kind of changed my sense of humor, I think. So it's something that's really important to me. And Stephanie, did you watch the show while it was on the air? I was one of the lucky ones, not not to brag, but I watched it from episode one because it was on that, that Sunday night uh, block with, like, The Simpsons and the the, show, the shows that I was already watching on Sunday. So I hadn't planned on watching it, but it was just, you leave the TV on and whatever comes up next, and it was just sort of, background so i remember i remember the, the the first episode i remember but not really fully getting it until maybe halfway through the first season where i was like oh this is far too clever for its own good this is this is something magical um and i've been a fan ever since yeah and this is one of the rare episodes that doesn't open with the full title sequence it just has it has a cold open that goes into a title card right um so i'm going to give you the uh the summary that comes with the um the dvd jealous when his girlfriend is nominated for a daytime desi job decides to stage a publicity stunt for his magic act by breaking out of the same prison where george senior is being held um and that is um, that is basically the A plot of the of the of the episode. I think um, the the kind of B plot is Lindsay and the tree and Johnny Bark and the kind of um, <laughs> and as as is always maybe rebelling against her mother by doing the exact opposite of whatever she wants, and George Michael following along with her. 
With Job going into prison, we finally get Marta meeting Michael for the first time. Um, we've already met Marta once before this, and this will be the final appearance of Leonor uh, Varela as Marta. And then we also meet, quite importantly in this episode, uh, Lucille Ostero, who um, Buster flirts with unbeknownst to himself. <laughs> in this episode uh let's get into the kind of the main plot which is job and his announcement of his prison stunt which kind of speaks to the fact that job cannot allow anybody else to have the spotlight i like that um the way that that uh that initial uh, like the shot of the interview is set up with job just like sulking and looking off in the corner and then he <laughs> yes. like stands up like to just take the focus completely off anyone else. I love how he characterizes himself as um, being Rita Wilson. Yeah, Tom Hanks' wife. <laughs> that was a good line. To prove that no prison can hold me, I will incarcerate myself in the penitentiary that holds my own father, only to escape 24 hours later. No shackles can hold these hands. Say that to them in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now here's the thing. We get the title of um, Marta's show. Uh, which is El Amor Prohibido. And I feel like that describes almost every single relationship in this episode in particular. Um, mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I, I don't think when Arrested Development started, they figured that this would be their motif. But basically, incest seems to be their motif. <laughs> in particular, uh, the Job, Marta, Michael mm -hmm. triangle... And then you have George Michael pursuing Maybe and basically following her and doing anything that she wants. And then, of course, Buster ending up in a relationship with someone who is basically, uh, you know, a lot like his mother, sharing the same Living across the hall her. from his mother. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so it's like there's this weird little motif that basically kind of all of these... You know, that Michael's love and George Michael's love and Buster's love basically is prohibido um, in this particular episode. It has a lot more to uh, do with the show than it would let on at the outset, I guess. Yeah. Um, bring back Lindsay's, um, what would you call it, activism, mm -hmm. from, which, was, mm -hmm. which was kind of prominent in the pilot, and that was kind of her trademark. Um, but it hasn't been really touched upon in the last couple of episodes. And I feel like uh, this after this episode, it's not really until the second season that they bother bringing it back as a theme. But I, I kind of, I love um, the exchange where it's like, um, you know, Lindsay says she's always been deeply passionate about nature. I've always been deeply passionate about nature. Perhaps you remember Neuterfest? I'll never forget your wedding. Which is a... Uh, <laughs> A wonderful commentary on how the family have viewed uh, Tobias and Lindsay's relationship, well, you know, since the, the beginning. The other <laughs> thing is the the activist uh, organization that we see in the pilot is Hoop, Hands Off Our Penises, which then we mentioned Neuterfest. There's a lot of phallic uh, activism going on from, from Lindsay. Yeah, <laughs> yes, which I think oh, yeah. fits... It fits with Tobias's character a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think. You know, that he, would, that he would be so kind of passive in that relationship and just kind of let her do that. I think we should touch on the, the this B-plot because it's kind of... Um, it's only in a few scenes, but it's it's kind of just continues some of the themes that have been in the previous episodes. You know, we get the first appearance, the, the debut here of the stair car. Michael has sold the company jet 
and um, he managed to keep the stair car. I don't know why he would do that. <laughs> I would think they could. I don't, I like I. I like how like he's keeping something that shows that they were once wealthy, but is completely impractical. And um, you know Johnny Bark, played by Clint Howard, you know showing up, of course, in his uh, brother's work on a number of occasions. And mm-hmm. here he is uh, as Johnny Bark up in the tree. The stair car kind of comes into it in that that's how like Lindsay gets up to get rid of him. Um, but also we have the kind of the last vestiges of the family before they were wealthy as well. And the fact that Lindsay has been holding on to this rental car, um, almost like she's holding on to the, the old life that she's used to. Great. So now we don't have a car or a jet? Why don't we just take an ad out in I'm Poor magazine? So, I mean, what are your thoughts on the stair car? Because I think it's uh, like probably like one of the most iconic running gags of the show. Yeah, that's how the um they start the like the season 4 credits, right? It's like just the stair car going into frame. It's like that's enough. It's an icon kind of, you yeah. know. Which is yeah. a, a weird thing to make into your show's logo is like a, a the stairs for an airplane. But I mean, it's it's kind of like I I think the thing that these earlier episodes are trying to show about Michael's that he's trying to pick up all the pieces and, like, take every scrap that he can of, like, what his life used to be or the family's life used to be and sort of try and resurrect something from that. You know, despite, like, his sort of bitter tendency, he's still trying to assemble something from, like, the wreckage. Well, and you mentioned that the the stair car being this thing that was once a a part of a status symbol, part of the jet, um, it is the one thing that they have other than this failing company itself that literally has the Bluth name that travels around and advertises the Bluth in such an obvious, but such a sad kind of way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird actually that they're like, I guess if you're, I mean, I've never owned a private uh, plane, so I don't know this, but I guess everyone has their own set of stairs that have their own logo on. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But um, when when Michael gives the stair car to Lindsay as as you know, the form of transport that she will now be using. It's all yours. Watch out for bridges and hop-ons. You're going to get some hop-ons. Which, of course, will become, you know, a running gag for the whole series (laughs) about how, Mm. oh, you... Every every time anyone mentions hop-ons, someone will immediately go, yeah, well, you're going to get hop-ons. Like, it's uh, as if this is, like, a thing that they they seem to acknowledge as general... You know, everyone understands. Yeah, of course, if you're driving a stair car, you're going to get hop-ons. I mean, (laughs) it's such a weird... Such a weirdly accepted sto- like thing to talk about. Um, that they have very personal knowledge and experience with hop-ons. <laughs> As if they all recognize that this is a universal thing when it comes to driving around with some stairs. Mm-hmm. Now, as part of this kind of um, this B-plot, we have uh, Lucille and Buster who are going to the daytime desis. Um, which, of course, Michael will end up also going to with Marta. Joe seems to have th- th- thinks that he's told Michael about something that he hasn't told him about, and Michael's confused. Come through. How'd I come through? Job, how'd I come through? And he obviously can't get him back on the phone to, to talk to him about mm-hmm. it, so he's just like, what, how, you know, and then obviously um, we, when he meets Marta, we see, like, how he instantly falls in love with her, and this will become the kind of overarching... Um, you know, this is the, this, this is the main plot that will run out over the next up to like episode thirteen. 
Thank you so much for taking me to the awards. Job said he really appreciated you coming through for him. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. This is how I came through, huh? Um, and unfortunately, you know, after this, we lose the first martyr. And the next time she appears, she will be completely different. I mean, I thought that was uh, kind of an unfortunate thing that, like, uh, there's the line, like, Michael, like, this was, like, the most beautiful woman that Michael had ever seen, and then they get rid of her, like, after this episode. <laughs> On the commentaries, Mitch Hurwitz is clear that it wasn't, like, a deliberate thing. It was just that they couldn't get this actress back. As you can hear from my voice, I am not American, so I'm not fully, completely clear on Spanish language anything. Um, so this whole... I live in South Texas, so whatever you want to know, I'm your girl. <laughs> I think it's... Obviously, it's done as a joke that you have these, like, huge guys with freckles and wigs. And I don't know what mm -hmm. it's meant to be. Like, I... I understand it's meant to be a joke, but I don't know if that's like a real thing that happens in like Spanish language soap operas that they have. Oh, it it is a a very real, very pervasive uh, sort of a constant expectation in uh, Spanish language telenovelas um, oh and, and Saturday afternoon Spanish comedy sitcoms. It's a thing, and and it, it happens show after show after show. Uh, so similar to like the Bumblebee guy that you have in The Simpsons, that sort of characterization is also very pervasive in, in Spanish language television. Why? Please don't ask me. <laughs> but I just know that it exists. <laughs> it's so, it's so and I have witnessed over and over. I, I love though that they that those the the is it the one category is just like all like guys with yeah huge freckles it's all and like wigs. fake boys yeah <laughs> and it's such a a weird kind of joke. Um, but obviously, if it's a real thing, then it's very well observed. You also have the in memoriam of the <laughs> yeah. uh, makeup artist, and his one credit is doing the makeup for these adult men dressed, <laughs> makeup as young boys. I, I love how during the in memoriam, um, which I can't remember what the Spanish is that comes up on the screen, but I love how like Michael is completely distracted, like um, you know, turning his napkin into like a little uh, like a, a swan or something. And everyone starts applauding, and he just looks around, and then he realizes he should be applauding. I think that's quite funny. And obviously, again, like when we get to after Marta has actually lost her award, Michael's like, you know, well done or not. I can't tell. I don't know if you won or if you didn't. He's like, he doesn't know if he should console her or congratulate her. And I think that's, you know, I think also a little bit of a commentary on how self-involved Michael can be. It's one of the most Job-like moments that Michael's had on the series. Mm -hmm. um, now, the other half of the daytime Desis, of course, is um, everyone's favourite uh, mother and boy. And uh, that is Lucille, who, who, who again is, um, you know, she's continuing this thing of both insulting and complimenting her children, usually within the same sentence. And she says, He's a beautiful boy. They don't appreciate him. It's his glasses. They make him look like a lizard. Plus he's self-conscious. And of course she's basically just made him self-conscious with her kind of like half compliment, half insult. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love, you know, I love uh, Tony Hale's kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, like glassy, glassless, um, glassesless acting <laughs> when he's just kind of standing and kind of shaking. <laughs> like like the, the sort of half dancing against the wall. Like, yeah, <laughs> that, that stuff is great. Like the, uh, I like the the whole setup of that like specific shot, where like the shot reverse shot of like Lucille to just him sort of looking aimlessly somewhere. I think this is a good point to talk about Lucille Astero, um, in particular Liza Minnelli, who 
was a friend of Ron Howard's and apparently he said to her, you know, would you want to do this role? And apparently she was just like, yes, straight away. And I must say, she throws herself into this role with the um, the whole um, vertigo thing. <laughs> Practically every scene finishes with her falling over. A touch of the disease. <laughs> and particularly when Buster has his panic attack at the hospital. And as mm-hmm. he's falling down, she's trying to stabilise herself. And she goes down and you can just see her head behind the chair as it slips. And I think she kind of... Particularly the chemistry between her and... Um, you know, Lucille and Lucille, the the kind of the insults that they throw at each other, which um, they form... A, actually, a, a cutscene includes um, kind of a longer version of the insults that they throw at each other. Lucille! Lucille! Hot Aren't you something showing up here without your husband? Shame be damned. Caution to the wind. Just <laughs> That's so sweet, darling. I'm here to support you. You're the one who's all alone and likely to stay that way. My husband's just a phone call away. That's one call per day, isn't it? Gee, I should think he'd want to save that for his lawyer. (laughs) At least he's in prison, not an urn. (laughs) You are so deliciously winning. Are we having fun? (laughs) The other Lucille also suffers from severe vertigo. It feels like they've known each other years and that it's kind of a well-worn kind of rivalry no, there, there's definitely a, a mutual in an odd way a mutual respect for both of their their status within their their social circle and their ability to to throw these jabs back and forth um it, it is the definition of frenemies <laughs> I, I am that they love to absolutely hate each other yeah i like um how the uh the lucille's have like very different methodologies for making these like cutting remarks because like uh, Lucille too is still trying to keep some sort of semblance of of like kindness, whereas like like Lucille Bluth is just like going whole hog and then like uh, trying to play it as a joke almost. And it's sort of interesting to see that as a relationship. Um, now, something that I think people should watch for throughout the run of this show is how Lucille two. In fact, I find it funny that. Alphabetically, they should be the other way around. Lucille Estero should mm. be Lucille 1. But um, Lucille 2, she doesn't interact with every Bluth. Um, she interacts with the, the three sons. Um, she doesn't really interact with Tobias. And she doesn't really interact with Lindsay. And in fact, throughout the whole run of the show, she never meets um, George Michael. Or maybe... And that is something that is is kind of called back on in season four when eventually George Michael meets Lucille too for the very first time in that season, which is kind of a, a weird thing that you think of Lucille too as being kind of quite integral to the show, and then you realise that actually there's you know a select few people that she interacts with. She spends more time with Carl Weathers than she does uh, half of the Blue Family. Yeah, yeah, making a stew. Um, now, uh, well, I mean, as we've brought up Carl Weathers, let's talk about the missing character from this episode, which is Tobias. He's at a weekend stage fighting workshop with Carl Weathers. Stage fighting workshop, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which I don't know how that can last a whole weekend, but apparently it can. Um, and of course, you know, up until this point, Tobias is most, you know, he, he didn't get the audition for the fire sale. And, um, you know his his staging of Much Ado did not go very well and was not well received. So uh, I guess he's decided to learn his craft rather than, you know, continuing 
um, you know, as an actor. Um, but he'll return for the next episode. Um, but he's absent for this one. And Lindsay is... Um, in this episode, her her main relationship is kind of with her her daughter, who once again indulges her rebellious side by um, when she first of all, Lindsay is is assigned by Michael to get Johnny Bark out of this tree, um, and of course she's you know while she's doing that she's wearing ostrich skin boots, <laughs> so she is a mm-hmm. a walking contradiction. She once she gets up there, she decides that she's going to stay in the tree. Which, of course, leaves Michael with the wonderful line where he goes, um... Okay, I'll see you when you realise what that bucket's for. Uh, and I, th- I think, um, Jason Bateman's delivery of that line is, is so perfect. Because it's like, he knows exactly the level of tolerance his sister is going to have for this protest. Um, of course, you know, he accidentally takes the stair car, so she can't actually get out of the tree. At which point, you know, maybe decides she's going to... She's going to cut the tree down, which seem even for maybe that seems a little extreme. While her mother and Johnny Bark are still in the tree to um, to try and kind of cut it down, uh, and that leads to the cut scene where um, Michael is trying to figure out. Um, I don't know why he's trying to figure out about Marta looking on IMDb, but he's looking on IMDb when he gets caught by his son, and we have this this kind of conversation where. Um, George Michael is looking for a chainsaw for maybe so that she can chop down the tree. Um, and which, you know, maybe is the kind of, out of all the blues, maybe is the one that I can imagine wielding a chainsaw, uh, against a tree. Um, and then we get into this kind of conversation where, which Michael will do a few more times in the series where he proposes a hypothetical, which is about himself, but the other person that he's talking to thinks it's about them and thinks that somehow they've been caught and in this particular case, um, Michael drops a line about saying, um, you know, it's wrong because it involves a family member. And of course, George Michael interprets this as um, his father figuring out about his love for his cousin. And so he gets super angry and kind of like runs away. And it finishes with um, what becomes kind of like a Michael running gag where he will have a conversation with someone and it'll finish. And it, regardless of the tone of the conversation, he'll just say... Um, as he walks away Michael thinks he's been caught but then George Michael also thinks he's been caught and neither of them have been caught because neither of them are actually paying attention to what the other one is talking about well this becomes sort of a running thing throughout throughout the series but we also get it once more in this episode at the end after the Job in prison and Marta gets called and she says oh my god (laughs) Job has been stabbed in the back when Michael's there talking to her. So we get a lot of that where, it, where it's, it's a, a misinterpretation of a the more obvious story. Yeah, yeah, that's, that keeps being a big source of the show's humor, and I really... I, I'm a sucker for those sort of things, so, I mean, just, like, the more I the mean, better, let's get into the Job you know? storyline there, where he decides to go into prison. You really think you can break out of my prison? You won't even know I was here. Obviously, just to upstage Marta to start <laughs> off with, but it actually turns into um, a father-son moment between him and his dad and i love when he enters and um you know george senior is like what are you doing in here life dad i killed the guy will arnett plays it so straight and so kind of serious that you think he might have murdered someone and then he's just like no it's just a publicity stunt i'm bust out of here tomorrow and i just love how quickly he breaks and it's worth pointing out that until arrested development will arnett was not 
a comic actor. He's not like a stand-up. He's not an improv guy. He's not a comedian. He's just an actor who, on Arrested Development, they figured out could play kind of very straight and be super funny. Um, and kind of play, and he plays. He plays this whole. Like when they do the, um, they decide to play catch. You've never even thrown a ball around with me. Uh, with White Power Bill <laughs> taking exception to, I don't know. What, I, I mean, I think little little Justice is always pushing his chances. I don't know why Little Justice thinks he can get away with this. Hey, White Power Bill, he, he's all right. White Power Bill can't hear you. With such dirty ears. Hey, White Power Bill has dirty ears. Hey, guys, dirty ears Bill. Dirty ears Bill. Um, you know, as Tobias calls him, a shiny building of a man. I, you know, White, White Power Bill, I, I wouldn't start yeah. calling him anything other than White Power Bill if that's what he wants to be called. <laughs> it should be Sir. Yes, Sir. Yeah. Anything yeah. you want, so, Sir. So, White Power Bill will, will return um, in a slightly more tragic storyline, I feel. His, his end on this show is... Uh, is unusual um but yeah so white power bill you know as uh, i mean job <laughs> job's problem is that he um, he's he's a shy he's a shy person when it comes to his uh, his business on the toilet and he's looking for a private bathroom when obviously <laughs> there is none and george senior gives the great line where he's like you know um i'd ask the guys to leave but they've been locking the doors around here lately oh, that's that's such a great line <laughs> I just like the way that the prison is run just throughout the show. It's just like a everything possibly wrong about the place is it's all there. Well, just the fact that uh, that the warden lets Job do this in the first place. Um, and and as we hear in the voiceover that it, that it's more for the potential beatings that he's going to get, like it somehow would bring a new form of entertainment to the prisoners to get somebody new to get beat I up. love the running gag yeah. as well of the, the, the um, what are they called, prison guard? That's the word I'm looking for. Of the prison guard, like, uh, tasing Job. It seems just for fun, just to, just to kind of amuse himself. And the first couple of times, you know, Job is like, you know, what is your problem? And then the last time he gets tased, he's like, this is personal. And I just love there's, there's a, a, even a weird little arc for that guard and Job throughout this episode of of the guard enjoying tasing Job a little too much. <laughs> and now when Job realises he's not going to be able to pass the key, and by the way, him swallowing the key is a fantastic sequence. And so Job went about swallowing the key to prepare for his escape. Yeah, with Will Arnett topless and down in wine and trying amazing. to eat food, just basically trying everything to get this key down. That's a that's a work of art, man. I do like the the, the typing at the bottom. <laughs> the professional magician do not attempt at home. The yeah, and of course at this time, and I think the the um, the alliance is a little bit of a callback to this. Is um, Fox had the, um, the 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 shows where they revealed all the magician's secrets, um, vo- voiced by. Um, um, right. What's his face off of X Files? The bold oh, guy. I, but yeah, he 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 matter. narrated all those you know magicians you know revealing the secret thing, and um, they they also had that similar disclaimer <laughs> whenever they did dangerous tricks of saying professional magician do not try at home. So that's like a kind of a very a, a very specific in joke, which I feel thirteen years down the line <laughs> would be kind of lost on most of the audience, but it works as its own little joke anyway. Um, it should be noted as well that up until this point, Job has only ever been identified as a part-time magician. So <laughs> I don't know if you can call him a professional. 
Now, Job realises, and this is the title of this show, once he cannot go and pass the key, I love the way he kind of holds onto the bars and stares wistfully at the camera and just says, I've made a huge mistake. It's the first of two times that he will say that in this episode, but I, I love his delivery there of just, like, realising what he's done. Um, now, he does escape, of course, although, <laughs> although you know, you could dispute it, where um, he gets stabbed by White Power Bill. And for the first time, Joe had the game of catch with his father he'd been waiting for his whole life. Okay, ready? Put your mid up. There you go. I guess White Power Bill stabs people for things other than their race. Um, and, you know, we find out at the very, very end um, how far the key got through his system. At this moment, this is when, you know, the phone is ringing at Martyrs and Michael is there about to confess his love to her for the first of several times where this will happen. And he gets interrupted uh, because she doesn't have an answering machine. And uh, I love how he gets so distracted that he can't let it go. And he's like, you guys don't have a machine. And she kind of laughs and then has to go answer it. And then, of course, she delivers the line, your brother's been stabbed in the back. And the look on Jason Bateman's face kind of just really pays that line off so well. Because it's like, I just it, it, I love how she's saying it to him. But obviously, as we said, he's kind of misinterpreting uh, what it means. And that's kind of the end of that storyline a little bit. Apart from we get into the hospital because you know, Job has, has got out. And I love um, when he wakes up and he's like, am I still in the prison? And Lucille is like, you're in the hospital. And he's very weak. Ta-da! <laughs> That's the, yeah. Uh... I also like um, the moment when Michael gets there and, like, Lucille makes that joke. I'll be in the hospital bar. And then she leaves laughing and you can hear her laughing from, like, down the hall. And she laughs joke. so loud that, that Michael is about to speak, but he <laughs> stops speaking because her laughter is so loud that it interrupts her. And Jason Bateman times that so perfectly so that it's like <laughs> he's about to say something, but the laughter is too loud that he can't, he can't say anything. <laughs> Um, and this is where kind of a couple of the stories intersect as Lucille 2 is is in the um, is in the hospital as well while, you know, Buster is there. Obviously, Buster, you know, accompanies Lucille everywhere. So he's at the hospital and I love how he takes his glasses off and he says, has your hair always been that pointy, Miss Ostera? Like, I love how he works out who she is by taking his glasses off and taking two steps back. To kind of get the right distance. I do also love uh, Lucille in this scene that she's in the hospital, but she still has on her diamond jewelry that she had on at the award ceremony. Yeah, that, I didn't catch that. Yeah, in her, she's in her hospital robe uh, with the bandaid on on the forehead on, on the temple, but still has on her her rhinestone, her blingy right rhinestone <sighs> necklace. Um, and and I think we we get this a lot both with Lucille and Lucille too. That is. Um, because th their, their status within society and status within their, their social circle is such the utmost importance to both of them uh, that even in the, the lowest of the low, being in the hospital because of a, an episode of Vertigo, that you have to maintain something that shows that you're somebody and that you have money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's th like they can't let their guard down. They can't kind of, they can't, they can't just be casual at any point. They always have to be um, on, I guess. Right. Okay. Uh, now, the conclusion of the, the tree storyline comes when um, 
Lindsay leaves the tree to go sleep in her own bed. And Johnny Bark learns something that the, the Bluth children, you know, have probably been taught, which is you never leave the tree. And he says to himself, that's why you never get out. That's of the why tree. you never leave the tree. I'm going to have to believe is a, 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 a kind of a, a planting of that, that joke, which will become, you know, more prominent in a couple of episodes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Jay Walter yeah. Weatherman. It's such a, yeah. a like a, yeah. such a, and it's so subtle because it's only on rewatching that you're like, oh right, of course, yeah. So I'm guessing Johnny Bark's dad probably used Jay Walter Weatherman as well to teach his kid a lesson, which he didn't learn because he got out of the tree, uh, and so the tree gets cut down. Um, mm. but during the thing is during this as well, we get a, a wonderful, we get one of these gags, which is how the model home is basically not that well made. Um, and Trish, Trisha Thune returns to do a report from literally outside the the Bluth home, talking about how the, the protest in the tree is about the building of these mini mansions. And she taps on the window, and as she does, it cuts straight inside, and the window falls through. And Michael, watching the television, goes, oh, you've got to be kidding me. It's always constantly falling apart, and bits are falling off, and... Later in the season, it'll, you know, it'll fall into a sinkhole. Basically, the whole the whole thing is very. Um, I mean, Southern Valley does really say, uh, you know, it, that is a- an accurate description of <laughs> of what's going to be happening with this model home. And um, we get the conclusion of the Michael Martyr Job kind of storyline in this particular episode, um, where Job, <laughs> as it, Michael was spiteful in that he didn't take the stairs to get Job out of the prison, you know, when he requested. He took his bike, um, which, of course, you know, led to um, Job saying, I'll just jump on you, you know, stay still. <laughs> and that's, you know, which is not really a good plan B in, in terms of getting out. Um, and Job, you know, lets his brother know that... He- I was going to walk out of that prison last night and break up with her. Good thing he didn't bring the stairs, huh? Mm. And we get this kind of weird little slap exchange between the two of them as Job kind of like pats Michael and then Michael pats Job back. And then as Michael leaves, he, he hits Job on the head and Job kind of reaches to try and grab him and while he's in his chair and he pulls on his stitches and he like winces in pain. And it's a, a good bit of physical comedy from uh, from Will Arnett. Um, and then, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, Job, Job, of course, as Marta is coming in and talking to Michael, Job says, you two keep on talking and I'm going to start getting jealous. And of course, throughout this whole scene, Michael is kind of crushed that basically if he'd have just helped his brother, he could now be going out with Marta, you know, free and clear and there wouldn't have been any problem. Um, And of course, Michael says something which calls back to the pilot. You got to put family first. That's the stupid thing that I believe. It's the thing that he's kind of got from his, his dad. Um, you know, George Cena has said a couple of times in the last few episodes, you know, family first. And uh, I like how Michael kind of putting his family first now is the thing that, that leads to him not being able to go out with Marta. Whereas if he'd actually put his family first and took the stairs, then he would have been fine. But I like that Michael is the only one who genuinely believes the family first thing. We had the scenes between George Sr. and Job in in the prison when it's just the two of them and, and Job mentions, you know, you never even threw the ball to me. And it's they're almost about to have this genuine moment and George Sr. responds, oh, so you're an athlete now? <laughs> um, trying to get that one last little, little almost Lucille-like dig in at, at Job. Uh, so, yeah, so 
George Sr. teaching them that family first, family first, but I think Michael's the only one who actually lives by it and actually tries to honor it versus just wearing it as a, a motto to try to uphold. That's also true of the work ethic. Mm-hmm. Like, George Sr. has a work ethic, you know, which we see in flashbacks where he's always at the office and always working, and this is something that is passed down to Michael, but clearly not any of the other Bluth children. <laughs> and Michael is passing that down to George Michael, yeah. you know, with the whole banana stand thing. So, you, the, the, clearly... Um, you know, Michael is the one who follows his father the closest um, and kind of Job is the one. Job, it's funny because Job always wants to be close to his father, but I guess if he'd just worked hard and worked at the company, he would have been close to his father. But Job finishes the episode for us, realising, you know, because Marta says she's going to go and tell, tell the kids, which is weird because later on it's revealed that she has two boys, so I don't know why she didn't say boys rather than the kids. But, you know, there she goes. And Job realises at this particular point that he has made another huge mistake, um, which I don't think is fair. I don't think that him getting back together with Marta is a huge mistake. I think, I think it's just a, at this point, it's just that his that this has become his catchphrase. But I, I think she's more of a plot device more than anything, unfortunately. Yeah, in this episode, she's not really doing that much except for being sort of like a like a courier to different locations, which is unfortunate. It's nice that they try to have a little diversity in here. Uh, but again, I feel like the character could have been better done. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a small complaint because obviously, you know, her this actress delivers the line of you know your brother's been stabbed in the back really well. <laughs> so I think I'm I'm willing to kind of, I'm willing to overlook everything yes, else yeah. just for the fact that she she nails that line so perfectly. And on the next Arrested Development, <laughs> the surgeon tells Job that the shiv would have done some real damage if it wasn't for this, and he shows him the key. And says it was in your lower intestine. To which Job says, "So close." Um, so, <laughs> so if he'd have had a little privacy, maybe he would have been able to pass that key finally. Uh, but as it was, it saved his life. So, um, and then we get uh, the start of another running storyline, which will go on practically for the entire run of the show, um, which is Buster making a bold move. And he, do- it's really weird because. He takes off his glasses, so I'm guessing he likes Lucille Ostero to be a fuzzy blur. Uh, he takes off his glasses as, before she opens the door, and Lucille Ostero is wearing her glasses. Um, I don't, I don't know if Lucille Ostero has not recognised Buster. It's in fact, it's, it's it's hinted earlier in the episode <laughs> when it's when when it, when this is introduced, where it says that you know she'd never seen Buster without his glasses, and that's kind of what attracts her to him. So I guess he's taken the glasses off because he realises this. Um, but you know, that, that storyline will run, you know, for quite a few episodes in in this first season and will be brought back at at least a few more times. And it is one of my favorite storylines. I think Liza Minnelli is so good just with, she's good with the kind of the, the, the dialogue, like, you know, she's, she can keep up with Jessica Walters. But also, she's really good with the physical comedy, and this is like Lucille Ostero is a role that is essentially, mm-hmm. you know, ninety-five percent physical gags, where she's constantly tipping over or falling over or losing her balance, um, you know. And I think she really, I think, I think if they could have, you know, there's a ton of other actresses they could have got for that role, but I think Liza Minnelli in that role is so perfectly cast, and she kind of elevates that role a little bit. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about Lucille too. There's an yeah, there's an earnestness to Lucille too. There's a almost naivete to Lucille too, and I I think Liza Minnelli's voice 
delivers that because she has that that higher register. Her big expressive eyes express that that naivety and that innocence so well uh, without her really having to to do a whole lot. So I'm she was an ideal choice. Um, I'm glad she's the one who got cast to do it, that she decided to do it because I don't think anyone else would have been able to to really push that character in that same way. Yeah, I absolutely love her in this. I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say, but yeah. Like she says the name differently to how everyone else says it. She says it with like a level of enthusiasm and passion that kind of everyone else almost kind of sighs when they say Buster, but she like genuinely likes him and, and kind of, you know, unlike Lucille, <laughs> unlike Lucille one, who is constantly putting him down within the same sentence as building him up <laughs> or attempting to build him up. Uh, you know, Lucille two is, is always kind of enthusiastic about what Buster does on the next episode of I've made a huge mistake. My guests will be, uh, Craig Ambrose and Kevin O'Leary and importantly uh, for those of that following along at home we're going to be covering Visiting Hours which was actually broadcast after Charity Drive so this is one of these occasions where on the DVD the episodes are the correct way round rather than being the other way around so um, you know don't expect us to be talking about the uh, the auction for at least one more episode um, so thank you both for joining me on this episode I don't know if you have anything that you wish to plug, but if you do, I'm going to say, Noah, do you have anything to plug? Uh, no plugs. It's been a pleasure, though. You're not on Twitter or anything, Noah? You know, you just... Uh, I I don't really use it, but my Twitter handle is uh, at I am the best Noah. Um, if you want okay. to do that, and go ahead. You have to plug that Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great handle. Free. Yes. I'm glad I got it. And I'm very proud of it. And Stephanie? I co-host a podcast called Lifemark, a made-for-TV podcast where we watch and discuss bad made-for-TV movies. I like to think that it's the sort of movies that uh, the only kind of movies Tobias could get cast in. So so there's my Arrested Development connection there. <laughs> and you can find it uh, at eartrumpetaudio.com or you can search iTunes, Stitcher for Lifemark. You can subscribe there as well. So thanks for joining me. Um, goodbye, Noah. Bye. And goodbye, Stephanie. Thank you, Darren. Goodbye. Goodbye.